Are you ready to join the cutest mindfulness movement ever? This podcast is sponsored by The Cutie Crew, a brand for kids and the young at heart that spreads the message of mindfulness. Head on over to cutiecrewbrand.com and join the movement. Natalie Calzadilla, and this is the Pachanga and Possibility Podcast. I created this podcast to empower you with knowledge about all forms of alternative healing, personal development, and mysticism. I want you to celebrate your wins and create a life of possibility. You, my friend, are a light worker, a way shower, and you will inspire others to do the same. So grab your cafecito and a notebook. Let's get started. Welcome back to Pachanga and Possibility. On today's show, we are welcoming back Dr. Tom Norris. He was my first guest on the podcast because he played an instrumental role in my own personal healing journey because he's been my spiritual counselor for probably about a decade now and also a mentor and a teacher. And I am a minister as part of his spiritual center the Church of the Way of the Messiahs, and I am excited to announce that he is releasing his first book. First and second are coming out a month apart, and we're going to talk about his book, A Fresh Cup of Tolerance, Universalism, The New Religion of Tolerance. And I had the pleasure of writing an endorsement for the book, and the book is wonderful. I feel like it's a blueprint for light workers, and we're going to take a deep dive into the book and cover some of the topics that really stood out to me that I personally liked. And if you want to know where you fit into this world as a light worker and what it means to live a life of tolerance and be a part of a community that tolerates people from all walks of life, and has a spiritual practice around it, then this is it. So without any further ado, I welcome Dr. Tom Norris. Welcome back to the show, Tom. I am so excited once again to have you again. Today we are talking about your book that is coming out in December, A Fresh Cup of Tolerance. So if you can please reintroduce yourself to the audience for those who don't know you and didn't catch episode two where you were a guest and talked about spiritual counseling. Well, of course, I'm thrilled to be back again. So thank you, Natalie. My name is Tom Norris, and I'm the senior minister and founder for Medicine Science Spiritual Center, which is a universalist church. I teach in the Religious Studies Department at FIU, and I am doing a lot of counseling, spiritual counseling. I have a practice with several staff, and yeah, we're just, we're having a lot of fun. All the things I, I, I get to do, all the things I enjoy and love. So I'm, I'm very blessed. Yes, you are, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you've been on my journey because thanks to you, I've gotten to do a lot of the things that I now truly enjoy. So, what is your book about? I had the pleasure of reading it and it was jam packed with wisdom and theology and just like it's like a blueprint for light workers and. It had so much in it from organizational leadership to how to 
work your divine light to the actual theology of what it means to be a universalist. So in a little short synopsis, what is A Fresh Cup of Tolerance about? Well, before I do that, I have to give a couple of acknowledgments. One, my contributor and co-author is my wife, uh, Kate Norris, uh, Reverend Kate Norris, and she's a really good editor because she would, I would read a section to her and she would always pick the one thing. I always knew there was a little weak area there and she'd hone right in on it every single time. And of course, this was always appreciated because it meant rewrite and, oh, maybe another chapter or two and stuff like that. So uh, Kathy definitely, definitely been a, a huge part of it. And secondly, I acknowledge in there the, um, my spiritual guides because many times I would start writing a chapter and it would come out almost a complete chapter and not have to make too many changes after that. And it just felt like something was speaking through me all the time. So, yeah, I wish I could claim, you know, all that wisdom was mine, but I, I have to admit that so much of it that came through <laughs> was from up there above. So the book is essentially, I mean, come on, we couldn't have had a better time for this book. And we're just getting through the Trump era. Hopefully, we're getting through it. And um, our country has been very divided. Our world's very divided between this very um, kind of authoritarian, intolerant way of looking at the world and a much more liberal and open-minded and inclusive way of looking at the world. So when I wrote the book back in, you know, it was published, uh, self-published for the first time in 2015, Donald Trump was just a little blip on the horizon, and we just knew he's a real estate developer up in uh, New York. Nobody would have guessed in 2014 or 2015 that he would be our next president. I think we all would have had a heart attack at that point. Um, but anyway, so we have found in the past four years, five years, that I guess the dark underbelly of our society has come out. And I'm kind of grateful to Donald Trump for that because it allowed us to see the things we need to work on. Definitely from everything from the prejudice against Muslims, religious intolerance, racial uh, inequities, and, and all the things that, you know, we, we read about and hear about all the time in the news. So this book, I guess, is a counter-proposal and said, hey, I don't think Jesus and Buddha and white Buffalo Catholic and Muhammad and all the other great teachers, Confucius, Jeremiah, Moses, I think if they got together uh, at a big party or a conference, um, I don't think we'd see them doing the things to each other that their followers are doing to each other. And so that was kind of the basis of the book. Like all these great teachers were teaching us several basic things, love your creator, love creation, and love each other. And so that's why I became a universalist, and that's why I decided to write the book, so we have a universalist theology. And when you say became a universalist, did you create this term? Is this I hate to say, like, no. your religion, or is it taken from somewhere else? It's a larger movement. Um, there's, you know, there's the Unitarian Universalist Church, which was originally Christian-based, is now very similar to our church in that it's everything-based. So, no, I did not invent the term, but we're, we seem to be the ones using it more often than almost anybody else. Although it's becoming very popular now, a lot of people are, are calling themselves universalists. So, yeah, that, um, it's a movement that's, you know, there's a lot of different strands. Um, ours comes more from Asian and Native American strands, but Unity Church and Unitarian Universalists came from a more of a Christian strand. But in the end, we're all kind of ending up in a similar place. 
Okay, good. I wanted to have that explained because I know that I went to a Unity Church once back in Phoenix with the expectation to find something similar to what we had in Miami, and it was not. <laughs> no. I, I was almost, and I, I've never been to more than one, so I don't know mm-hmm. about the other ones, but this one in particular was very structured, like a typical Christian um what are their services called? I get them confused with Catholic and Christian. Well, it's not a mass. It's just a, a church service. A service? Yeah, service. their church service is very yeah. like structured, almost identical. And I was, I did, right. it did not go well. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that Unity, is not. <laughs> in Miami, Unity in Miami is not quite so structured. And I suspect it depends upon the various pastors for each one. But Unity overall is still a very extremely progressive and inclusive and universalistic type church, for sure. Great. And I want to jump in to applying this in to kind of piggyback what you were talking about our current times. And how do we, using your principles, apply it towards finding tolerance, for example, on both sides of the fence when it comes to vaccinations? Like, I've been really kind of heartbroken when it comes to the spiritual community and how we've approached the idea of who should be or shouldn't be vaccinated, or even the divide between Republicans and Democrats, like how can we apply these universalist concepts and principles from both sides of the argument? I can't do very well on the other side because I'm a very pro-vaccination person because I come from a medical family. I was biology pre-med, science major myself. Um, I understand all the principles behind it. And it uh, kind of surprises me of some of my really intelligent friends who don't trust the science or the evidence. And we even have, you know, I was talking to my doctor today and she said it frustrates her that There's even a few doctors and nurses and others that also are anti-vaxxers, and she just doesn't understand it because the science is very clear. But it seems to be a lot about distrust. Um, And um, I don't know how to overcome that other than my, my way is to just give people the information and then let them decide what they need to do. But this idea, for example, among my anti-vaccination friends, well, it's a personal choice. You can't tell me what to do with my body, as one woman angrily told me recently. And I said, I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your body, but I am saying it's not just a personal choice because your personal choice harms others, possibly. And in the past few months, just literally, I've had so many clients who've lost friends and family to this Delta variant. My own son had the Delta variant two weeks ago and was really sick. And I have a number of clients who've gotten COVID who are not vaccinated and are now saying, maybe I should have. And I said, yeah, maybe you should have, but okay. I'm glad you, you, you know, one said that he's getting vaccinated because he never wants to go through that again. He says it was like he got hit by a Mack truck. So I don't know what to tell my spiritual friends other than I know this goes back to the ideas about autism and that uh, vaccinations have caused that. It goes back to 1954 when we put fluoride in the water, which has meant that we all have our teeth still. And, and there seems to be this general fear whenever we do something new, but vaccinations aren't new. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to back there with the polio and smallpox vaccinations. So when it comes to those, to those difficult feelings as a universalist, whether we're, we're pro-vaccine or anti-vax, how do we find that when we're like angry about our, you know, 
the stance that people are taking, whether we're, doesn't matter which side of the fence, like how do we mm-hmm. find that compassion? Because I know I remember in the beginning when I came into the church where we gave that example, like, you know, we're our church and, and we preach on conditional love and what would we do? You would give us the example, like what would we do if like Castro came in right now or Hitler and wanted mm-hmm. to join our sacred circle? Like how mm-hmm. would we handle that? And I feel like, we're in that same like we have to use that same example in this in this existing problem because the divide it's causing such a rift for families and friends mm-hmm. and our country i guess the universalist principles are that we work really hard not to judge others obviously people know politically i am not a pro trump person but i don't judge him as a human being i judge his behavior and how it hurts people but i don't judge him as a human being because first of all as a past life regressionist leaving in reincarnation in some lifetime i've been a donald trump you know we've been an adolf hitler maybe not to the extent of an entire country or world but we've we've had those tendencies ourselves so who am I to judge? So I, I have that compassion there. And the second thing is, I like to believe the Universalist Church is science-based in the sense that one of our last principles was, I think, Principle 27, uh, and I can't quote it exactly, but basically it said that, you know, this old conflict between the church and science or religion and science really isn't necessary because they're both two sides of the same coin. Science tries to explain the universe and Religion tries to feel and understand it, and I think in the end that they will be one. So that's where I come from on that. It's just like I I think that the Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson vaccines were creations of God. God said, you know, uh, let's help these people out here. Science is not always bad. I mean, if we think about it over the past 200 years, 300 years, how many hundreds of millions of lives have been saved because of Western medicine? Does that mean I always love Western medicine and everything it does? Absolutely not. I absolutely totally appreciate indigenous and shamanic and Eastern medicine too. So I think we're in a place where it's not resolved yet. And that's why we're going to continue having these discussions. And I just hope we'll be gentle with each other on it. Thank you for your perspective on that. So Mm -hmm. let's jump into the universalist principles, is that what was born first, the 28 principles, and then the book? How did this book like come to life? Because it goes all the way back into the 90s, right? Yeah, it does, yes. In fact, the 28 principles go back to 1997, I believe. I was in seminary getting my master's in divinity at that time, and uh, I was taking a course on church history. And we were discussing these these church councils back in the 300s and 400s, and there were some wonderful liberal progressive uh, bishops back then, such as Arian and some others, that really reflect more of what my background was as very progressive, liberal uh, Christian. And yet the church, the Roman church, was very authoritarian in those days because they were Romans. And so these people were often killed or uh, banished and, and, and kept. And I had this just tremendous sense of grief that night, as if I'd been there, like I'd maybe been in some of those councils, and I was thinking, what is happening to my people? So I was, Kathy was doing a meditation group at Unity on the Bay that night, which was a block or two away from my uh, seminary. So I walked over afterwards and was waiting for her. And all of a sudden, these 28 principles just started pouring through. Uh, Holy Spirit, just with Sharon, 
And so I wrote them all down. And so that's how we kind of got started in the church. <laughs> because we had a church at that time, uh, a spiritual center, but we hadn't really thought of it as a church yet. And um, that kind of just solidified it. Now we call it a statement of principles because they're guidelines. We don't make it a statement of beliefs because we just leave it up to you to take from it what you wish. But those 28 principles have been kind of the guiding force for the church since. So a couple of the principles that I wanted to kind of do a deeper dive in, and let me pull it up here. I'm so glad I have the book so I can be, so I have the principles before in front of me. <laughs> so number eight is one that I kind of wanted you to touch on. And it says, we are all sons and daughters of the divine creatress creator with all the love and inheritance of such when we so choose. It is a height of arrogance to believe that divine creation spirit of all that is a creatress creator of unconditional love and unlimited wisdom would not love all creation or would come to only one community or people or favor one group over another, or one sex over another, or one person over another. We are all favored sons and daughters, equally and yet uniquely loved by great spirit, which is the beauty and mystery of the divine paradox of the many and the one. And that principle just stands out so much to me because I feel like as universalists, like we're all universalists already when we show up to the spiritual mm -hmm. center. We just kind of found our people when we show up. And a lot of these principles are like already in us. Uh -huh. And that was one of them where I just sit there and when people are splitting hairs about the religion, like about religions, and they say, and I, I'm like, how can this one God favor you over me? Like, how does that even make sense? Like, I can't. So the fact that you have this principle, like, talk to us a little bit more about that one. Well, I think that principle probably is the heart of universalism, because it's so inclusive. And it doesn't, as the book points out, and we're not just talking about human beings. Since we're a very shamanic type of universalist church, very pantheistic, God is part of everything, we have to include, just like our Native American friends, the animal and plant nations, the elemental nations, grandfather, son, and grandmother moon, the star nations, the unborn, the ancestors, basically everybody and everything is part of us. So it's obviously a very inclusive principle. And if there was no other one, I would say that would sum up what the church has been about. So I want to read principle number 10, which is a continuation, I feel, of number eight. And it says, we recognize and affirm that limitless beauty and truth of the divine creation spirit, the Holy Spirit, who reveals itself through the many religions and peoples of faith throughout history and throughout the world. We acknowledge that the divine creation spirit of all nations, all peoples, of all creatures, appears in many forms of revelation through divinely guided teachers, oral and written scriptures, and individual inspiration among all the peoples of the world. We call these revelations inspirations, and teachings, the loving, universal, divine truths of the great spirit that shine through time, culture, personality, history, and geography. Mm -hmm. And so for this principle, it just, I feel, further communicates that 
the divine creator creatress speaks through all of the religions that there's no one way or one messiah yeah uh, you know it's interesting most people don't realize that islam is a very universalist religion although it has not always been so and, and certainly isn't portrayed that way now but karen armstrong the great theologian talks about how Allah talked about that prophets came to all the peoples of the world, and there was no one prophet that was more important than the other. Muhammad constantly kept telling his supporters, no, I am not more important than Jesus or Moses or Noah or any of the other great prophets that have come, and all of them are have been instruments of God. And uh, so, you know, it's sad that Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and these great teachers were so progressive and liberal for their time and yet their followers, shortly thereafter, when they would pass on, their followers would get very structured. And, you know, Max Weber calls it the uh, iron cage of bureaucracy, where all of a sudden they become institutions and power brokers, and they kind of get away from the beautiful teachings of their teachers. So I've heard prophets come to the smallest Indian tribes that are as wise as any Moses or Muhammad or Jesus. Let's talk about those that serve the darkness. So when it ins- I won't read, I won't keep reading all of them, but the ones that serve the darkness, and I'm sure people are curious, like, what about those that serve the darkness? And is there really evil and hell? That's a great question. Well, as universalists, we can tell you to go to hell. It doesn't mean much for us <laughs> because we don't believe in hell. Um, I think we're just fine in creating it all by ourselves up here. I know people that, and I've lived in weeks and months and sometimes years of hell where my life was really hard and difficult. So we don't believe in a sense of hell or sort of an eternal place of damnation. I mean, we might be going along with the, the Hindus that maybe if you karmically have to be taught some tough lessons after you, you've passed on for a while. But their hell, you're not stuck there forever. Once you learn the lesson, you're out of it and you can start your next life. So we're very obviously very liberal about that. In terms of evil, yeah, sure there's evil in the sense that terrible things are done by humans against other humans and against our world uh, and creatures lots of times. And some of it you have to wonder, why would anybody do that? It seems very malicious. It seems very, I mean, I'm reading the Nuremberg trials now from uh, all of Hitler's uh, followers uh, back in 1946 and when we put them all on trial. And you, you just, when you hear about the Holocaust and the things that these Nazi leaders did, they're just like, why would anybody do such crazy things? And somebody used to teach psychology, I understand the psychology of people who are narcissistic and people who are uh, who don't who lack compassion and empathy and all that so i understand that for them is all ego and power so yeah i do think evil does exist at the same time the native americans tell us that all of these dark masters and dark teachers are just shadow teachers they're still teachers so what did adolf hitler teach the world <laughs> hopefully yad vashem never again Unfortunately, since then, we've still had quite a few genocides, so we're, we're learning slowly but surely. So I think that um, that's why I said I was grateful to Donald Trump, because he pointed out, uh, he didn't create this, he just brought to the surface a lot of things that a lot of people didn't feel empowered enough to talk about it. I'm sorry they feel so empowered now, but on the other hand, now I know who I have to engage if I want to work for a better world. It's interesting now that he's out of office and his slogan was like draining the swamp. 
And if we put it in this context, how like it revealed like the swamp that existed. I don't know. We think we're still trying to drain it, but <laughs> that, that as soon as he took office, a lot of the light workers were saying exactly that. Like he's here to show like what mm-hmm. the dark side, our shadow work as a as a nation and as a people. So let's jump into the concept of Daddy King God and. <laughs> what that means in terms of the age of Pisces and then moving into the age of Aquarius and even what those terms mean actually and how do we put that all together because I, I had never seen it put that way as humanity as as an age is growing mm-hmm. up like we need we're mm-hmm. maturing as a species and this concept of daddy king god is a very immature way like not immature but like young juvenile way of of a relationship mm-hmm. and what that means as the maturity of a species and how that is supposed to evolve into a grown-up healthy relationship with the creator creatures well you have a beautiful baby daughter right do you always want to stay a dependent baby who's not going to get learn how to be independent and learn how to engage the world and grow and come into her own power do you want to keep her dependent forever no. <laughs> right. Now, of course, none of us wants our kids to grow up in terms of, well, it's, you know, my, I still see my 44-year-old daughter, but I don't see her as a little girl, but I kind of miss the little girl. Okay. But that's normal. But I never would want to keep her there. I'm so thrilled that she has grown into this amazing person that she is. And I think God's the same way. The age of Pisces, um, the last... Um, 2,600, 2,400 years or so, was the age of the great gurus and the great teachers. So we had the Buddha that came along just around that time, Confucius, Lao Tzu. Then we moved into Moses and Jesus, Muhammad, and all the other great teachers that have been here since then. And I include people even like Dr. King and um, Gandhi. These were all these amazing teachers that humanity looked toward for guidance. Well, the age of Aquarius, which we're about to move into, which means that the, the constellation Aquarius will be rising in the east for the next uh, 2,400 years, and that should be in the next 20, 30 years or so. Um, we're moving into the age where I believe, and others have made this point too, that we now have to, we're not going to have these daddy, mommy saviors anymore, that we're supposed to grow up and not need that. Instead, we find the Messiah within, the Christ within, the Buddha within, the shaman within ourselves. So we become our own gurus. So we're being challenged as a species to grow up. So we're kind of like, you know, some of us are the kids in mom and dad's basement still at age 40, okay? Not healthy. And others of us are really motivated at 21, 22, 23, when we get out of college and all that, to get our own apartment and start living our own life and pay our own bills and all that kind of stuff. And I think God would really like us to kind of grow up and quit being these immature kids all the time and uh, start showing uh, that they're, that we're moving into an age of partnership with God and not just Daddy, King, God. Because remember, when all these principles of... Um, uh, the way we looked at God were created, it was in the age of kings and queens. So that was the only way the people could think of it. And so you go to your Roman Catholic or Protestant church, who do you hear? Our sovereign Lord. We are vassals and subjects to our Lord. And, and it's just like right out of the 1400s, okay? And um, imagine if Christianity and Judaism had been created today. Then we would have our president God, and the House of Representatives would be the people of God, and we would be thinking of it in a much more democratic point point of view. So we have to remember that 
historically, we've been stuck with this idea of God as this daddy king in the sky. The Native Americans thought we were nuts when the European explorers came over and explained their view of God. They said, you really think he's this old white dude with a long beard uh, sitting in a white in a throne up in the sky? And they said, how primitive. And then they heard that they'd killed the Son of God. And they said, what's wrong with you people? Couldn't you tell? I mean, it really was quite quite strange to the, quote, primitive Native Americans whose theology, as you and I well know, is quite sophisticated for sure. So Yeah, I it's such a concept. When it comes to the Daddy King God, I feel like that movement and this transition into growing our relationship with God, it's why a lot of the New Age movement is about experiencing God through direct revelation instead of going to God and having going yes. to church and having someone tell them like what to do mm-hmm. and that thirst for that communion with God mm-hmm. in you know in their living room on a meditation mat through direct revelation. Right. And that's what yoga is all about. The Hindu religion is all yoga. It's not the kind of yoga we Americans practice because there's so many different kinds of yoga, but they're all about becoming one with God. Yoga means union or reunion with God. And um, and I think in our church, whenever we meditated, um, I have a really kind of sad story to share. There was, um, Kathy and I were at a um, a seminary alumni meeting with all these ministers and priests and all that from the community, really some of the top officials in the clergy in, in South Florida. And there was a uh, Jesuit priest, and the Jesuits are known for being very intellectual and academic, and he was in charge of a, several of the large churches in South Florida, the Catholic churches, and he was so proud of the fact that he said, we're trying to get the people out of the, just coming to Sunday Mass, where they're kind of a captive audience, and they're there because they're supposed to be there. And they had these wonderful spiritual retreats where they were really challenging people, and they said people were, you know, God was talking to them. And then he said something that made my soul ache. He said, of course, God has never talked to me. And I just, my heart, I just thought, this man who's so incredibly educated knows so much more about God than all of us will ever know, and he doesn't think that God's ever talked to him. Well, you know Kathy. Kathy will will jump in where angels dare not tread. She said, (laughs) oh, all you need to do is come to one of our sacred circles. We talk to God every week. Dead silence around the table. And I thought, okay, that went over well. <laughs> but it was it was a kind of a sad state that uh, so many people can't imagine that direct connection to God and, and hearing God's voice within us, you know? So, yeah, that's my wife. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> I love that saying, though, that she treasures where, where angels don't. <laughs> Yeah, witches and angels. Yep, she, she jumps right in. So, oh, I gotta love Kathy. So, mm-hmm. what is the difference between New Age and Universalists? Uh, well, first of all, I think New Age is a misnomer. Um, that came about in the '60s and '70s, lots of times, and it was a, a reaction from the large Christian churches to all this stuff that was coming in from Buddhism and Hinduism and and meditation and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Buddhas and statues and all that kind of stuff. They were uh, reacting to it. So they said, this is the new age. And it was kind of derisive way. And then the people who were actually practicing, yes, this is the new age. But actually, many of those ideas and concepts go back 
into the 19th century uh, with the Theosophy movement. People don't realize that, but in the 1800s, there's a huge third wave beyond uh, Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholic Christianity of people who believed in reincarnation, and they were doing this all this kind of New Age stuff in the 1800s in little tiny towns out west and all this stuff. And, and people never knew that because the church didn't really want to talk about it. Well, the research has been very clear. But some of the principles go back literally according to Madame Bavlatsky, who was the founder of Theosophy. These go back thousands of years. And they go back to Hermes Trismegistus and um, the uh, Egyptian gods and goddesses, Isis and all that. These principles are not new age. They're very old age, but now they're being reawakened. And so that's why I guess it's kind of a new age. So universalist is very much connected to that because the new age is much more inclusive and open-minded about religion and people. Define, in the book, you define the light workers and what it means to, to do the light living. And I loved mm -hmm. how you defined it because I had seen the definition and it's a very popular word and i feel like it's also phasing out like it was a really big like, term and uh and now it's i feel like there's other keywords that people are tend to use in the in the new age community now but what is light living because it's not the obvious stuff of like being in the healing arts and having to do no. activism it can be so many mm -hmm. other things i think it's so simple if you came here to give just a little bit more back to the earth and not just be a taker that in the end, if you leave a little bit of light, then that's really a good life. And if all of us did that, imagine how light our planet would be. Little islands of light connecting everywhere. So whether you're a, a good politician, a good public servant, and you choose to give service that way, you as a mom, it, by raising your daughter the way you and Daryl are going to raise that child in a very uh, spiritual way, that little girl can't help but grow up what well, we already know. <laughs> she's going to be something else. But she can't help but have that support system so that when she has to deal with some of the difficulties of life, she's going to have a good foundation for it. And she's going to know much more of who she is than, say, you and I were able to from our families. To You know, we oftentimes weren't accepted for who we are by a lot of people. So light workers today are just people who give something back to the planet. It can be as simple as you go down to the Humane Association on Saturdays and volunteer for the animals. It doesn't have to be huge stuff. So, And you mentioned in your book uh, the example from the HeartMath Institute. Mm -hmm. And I love this example because I've heard it mentioned in other places too. Can you share that with us? Well, the HeartMath Institute is out of Princeton, and it's a group of a lot of young sci scientists who have um, noticed some strange phenomena that, for example, um, during the 9-11 uh, attacks 20 years ago, um, there's a couple of satellites that are up at 22,000 miles, I believe, and they stay stationary over the planet. And they record everything like magnetic, um, environmental, climate change, all sorts of stuff, temperature changes. And they found this really strange thing, that 15 minutes after the first tower was hit, there was a huge spike in the Earth's magnetic field. 15 minutes later, when the second tower was hit, 15 minutes after that, there was another huge spike. And they said, that's really odd. How could the Earth's magnetic field be affected by a human event? 
they started looking into it and they found that after Princess Di's crash, as soon as the word of her death passed around the world, there was a huge spike again in the magnetic field of the Earth. This really intrigued them because they know that the brain and the heart have the same magnetic resonance in terms of megahertz as the Earth. So we are totally in alignment. I mean, I, it reminds me very much of the movie Avatar, where you're just, the, the people were, the Navi were completely connected to the Earth and everything part of it. So they've uh, put these little magnetometers around the world in various places, and they've been noticing that, yes, there is a definite correlation between human events and the Earth's magnetic field. So think of it this way. If we had 7 billion people in fear consciousness, what kind of a tsunami or earthquake could that create? If we had 7 billion people in calm in the midst of difficult times, what might that also be allowed to uh, happen to the earth that would be uh, much more calm itself? So it's just intriguing that we're beginning to finally figure out as all our shamanic peoples have been trying to tell us for 100,000 years that we're all totally interconnected and nothing we do uh, is not going to affect something somewhere. I love, yes, and science is finally proving it. It is yeah, wonderful yeah. news. Mm -hmm. Oh, so good. Let's talk about community. You mentioned the importance of tribe and the difference between tribes and other forms of community. How has that played out for medicine signs? And we haven't necessarily spoken about medicine signs specifically and the church, but just the, the concept of, of community and what that does for us and how it helps us. Well, uh, obviously in the past uh, 100 years, our definition of community from small town America to whatever the hell we are now has changed significantly. When I was a child in the 50s, my mom knew everybody for three blocks around. I could be playing anywhere and she knew Mrs. Brown three blocks away. Uh, when they moved, we moved into that neighborhood in 1954, all the women in the neighborhood came over and there was a big coffee clatch and they brought cakes and, and coffee and pies and, and uh, got, to, got to know my mom and introduced her. We don't have that stuff today. Those kind of community threads have really frayed and broken down. So I think one of the reasons I uh, created Medicine Signs was because I just knew my Christian church, as much as I loved my childhood and my ministers, and my Sunday school teachers and the people in that, wasn't meeting my spiritual needs. There was something missing. And I was getting all this kind of universalist kind of stuff coming into my head. So we created medicine signs and people said, oh, we have a place now where we can just be us. We can be as weird as we can be. And it's, we're, we're accepted for who we are. And many people have said the first time they would come to a sacred circle, they would say, oh, I feel like I've come home. And I knew that feeling. And I realized, hmm, I think we created medicine signs because we don't have the tribal, small-town community feeling anymore. We need a place where we could have that community. And we did it for 28 years. And then it wasn't working the same way anymore because I think over 28 years, things changed a lot in terms of how people handle things and how busy we all are and so on and so forth. But I think that uh, we all are missing the intimacy of the tribe. Now, that really ticks me off when I hear all the um, talking heads now talk about that we are become very tribal, as if tribal's a bad thing. Oh yeah, we, the, the, what you hear in the, in, the, in the news all the time is that we've become these uh, culture wars and uh, these tribal wars. 
Well, yeah, there were wars between tribes, but in ancient history, tribes oftentimes got along really well. Um, tribes would live next to each other for a thousand years and, and not fight. And then there were others that seemed stuck in fighting, but there was, it was much more rare. So I think that the idea of what I mean by a tribe is a place where you, you understand and know your community. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Lutheran minister who opposed Hitler and was killed for that, said that a community is not a group of like-minded people. That's why he was he was opposed to white supremacy and the Nazis. He had a lot of experience with that over here in this country in the 30s with the KKK and then also with the Nazis. He saw them very similar because they believed the community was people like themselves. He says, no, community is an ethical contract between peoples. And that is not about just being alike because, I mean, just look at all the friends and people we have. I go to Florida International University. My students are from Africa and Europe and Asia, just everywhere. And everybody gets along fine. And, and so this idea that the tribe has to be all white people or all men or all women or whatever, it just doesn't work for us as universalists. It's not been our experience. We love the diversity. It makes life so much more interesting. It really does. And I took it for granted because I was born and raised in South Florida and spent most of my professional career working at Florida International University. And it was normal to work with people from all walks of life and and everybody gets along and it's just normal to see every race and every continent, everything all day, 24-7. It's just normal. Mm -hmm. And then I moved away to places like Tennessee and Arizona and everyone looks alike. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, wow, this is so different. Like you only have the experience of maybe one to three cultures and or races and that was it and mm -hmm. it's yeah it's so so of course you don't see the examples of like how communities can work without a problem mm -hmm. especially if you come from very different belief systems like it's definitely possible And also, I also had the same reaction when I came to the spiritual center. And after my first time, I was like, wow, finally, like, this feels like home. It's, it just, it did. It felt like home. There was people that were like me, but not like me, and I can be myself. And it was truly life-changing. And I just wanted to say thank you, you know? Like, it was just... And I can't, I'm so grateful for all of those years that we had at the spiritual center and it just came at the right time. And it was like, as soon as I finished my master's degree, I got my MBA, graduated and found medicine signs. And it was like the beginning, like, all right, you finished the academics. Now it's time for Earth University. And it right. started there. And then that's when the real transformation happened and, and coming home for, for me. What's the downfall of not having community? Like, what does that do to a person when you're not in community? Well, as a counselor, I can tell you that many times depression and suicidal feelings have to do with people who feel disconnected and they don't feel like they have a support system or a community. And um, I think that the downfall is isolation alienation. Imagine if some of those people who are white supremacists and others, if we could just stick them in the head 
of someone and someone they thought would be a horrible person. They would never want to be around that Muslim or that Hispanic or whatever. And they had to live inside that person for a month. You can only imagine that after that month, they would come out different because they would see that person was human like them and had issues and problems like them and so on and so forth. So I think so often uh, community is also about uh, not being isolated. My friend Elise is, uh, works for the CDC in, um, in Chicago. and She's Cuban-American. And everybody there thinks she's just so interesting because she's so different. Now, she's very light-skinned, so you would never know that she was Cuban-American unless you, you know, talk to her and she shares that. She doesn't have an accent. She's fine. She's cool. And she says, but she feels like she's this exotic pet. <laughs> and so she's so grateful she's dating a guy who's Puerto Rican and <laughs> gets her, you know. They know the same good candies that they used to love as kids and stuff like that. So, And I, a lot of my friends from the, who live in the Midwest have had that experience where they go out there and, you're Cuban. Of course, everybody thinks they're Mexican because um, you, you poor Hispanics are always lumped yep, in. Yep, been there. And my Mexican <laughs> friends, like, what's wrong with being a Mexican? I mean, I don't get that, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Oh, you know, too much, huh? Yeah. So it's so important to be in community. And I, as an introvert and kind of having some social anxiety, don't do well. I've historically never did well in groups. So it's so important to find your tribe and not in a cliche way, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Like it's important yes. to find the tribe because you really thrive. And I made friends for life. And had I not taken that first uncomfortable step of going to this meditation circle that I was invited to, I would have never found the spiritual center and my tribe. And I needed that. My soul needed it. And I'm so grateful that I've made lifelong friends and I ended up at that spiritual center by mistake, I don't want to say by mistake, but I was a favor to somebody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you never know what spirit is going to do and how oh, yeah. they're going to get you there. And I had a friend who was in really bad, dark place and he mentioned that he got invited to some uh, spiritual circle, meditation circle. And out of me wanting to support him, I went and then I showed up and I never left and he never came came back really <laughs> so, that's how it works so yeah you have to trust those little nudges definitely mm -hmm. so what's the biggest takeaway that you want to give readers like what do you want the like how do you want this book to help them in their lives to impact them like if there's one thing that they can uh, that they must take away from from a fresh cup of tolerance what would it be well, it's interesting because it ties over into my next book, which was about spiritual counseling. What I hope people will take away is that everybody came to the planet for a purpose. Most people don't aren't aware of it, but it's kind of, I guess, what we call a higher purpose. And like I said, it can be something as simple as being a great mom or dad, or it can be the person in the office that people really can count on, and he's always or she's always got a smile. It can be by being a leader, or it can be by being a great introvert who's behind the scenes helping things get done. So I'm hoping that everybody will take away from this that there's no worthless people on the planet. No matter how down, depressed, and, and worthless they may feel, maybe from their childhoods or how they've been treated, they have something really important to give. And when they open up to that, as I did, as you did, as other, because I didn't know this when I was 17 or 18 or 19, but as the years progressed and I would take this step, not realizing it was even a step in that direction, uh, when I finally got to it and 
quit fighting my higher purpose. I mean, I never wanted to be a minister. What the hell is that all about? I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist. And, um, but I kept getting this insistent voice, and I found this amazing seminary that was very liberal and, that, and just wonderful people there, and I got so much out of it. And so I opened up to my higher purpose, and the second I did, when I stopped fighting it, the doors just started opening up all over the place. And I've seen that time and again with the people I work with. When they stop fighting themselves and they go with what they truly want to do and want to be, the doors open up, no matter how impractical it sounds at first. So I hope that message of higher purpose and um, let's turn this into a planet of love and light. Absolutely. Now let's cover your next book really <laughs> fast or next, but not really next, first, but next. <laughs> uh huh. So a fresh cup of counseling. Right. And it's subtitled A Handbook of Spiritual Counseling. So so who is this book for? Well, this is for professionals more, although lay people can read it and they'll find many of the cases I discuss in there fascinating and you know give them a lot of insight. But it's for people who are already in the mental health professions or life coaching and stuff like that. It's to uh, basically there was no books that gave training doing spiritual work. And spiritual work is obviously more than psychotherapy. Do I still do psychotherapy? Sure, I still have that piece in there because I have all those years of skills in it. But it's so much more. So let me share how it came about. In 1988, we had something called the Harmonic Convergence. And it was basically a meditation where people around the world were to imagine holding hands and create one world. And it was one of the times I think Great Spirit was sending us a message of how to start moving us to another level of vibration, a higher love vibration. At the time, I was a little more cynical and made fun of it as calling it the Holding Hands Love Fest. But, yeah, that, well, what can I say? But it, it, it got me really good because the next year, for some reason, my spiritual thirst just opened up and I could not get enough. And I got introduced to the Lakota religion that I've been practicing all these years. I got introduced to everything, Buddhism, yogi, yoga, etc. I couldn't get enough. So the laugh was on me. And I started seeing that my own personal issues, I'm an incest survivor, and I'd hit a wall in psychotherapy and my own therapy. But when I started applying these principles, these spiritual principles, I just took off like a rocket. It's like things got started getting healing. I said, hmm, if this is working for me, I wonder how my clients would like it. So I would bring in things like the Native American medicine wheel and the Buddha Eightfold Way and so, so forth. And they loved it. And all of a sudden, their therapy took off because a lot of them had hit the same kind of wall. And so I've not looked back since. I just found that um, the spiritual counseling accelerates it two, three times faster and it just goes deeper. So that's why I wrote it. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited to read it. And for those who haven't listened to episode two, Tom, we covered what spiritual counseling is and took a deep dive, a deeper dive into spiritual counseling and how he practices and with uh, all of the examples that I feel made a big difference when it comes to your work. So is there any last things that you want to say? Or actually, before that, I wanted to differentiate for A Fresh Cup of Tolerance. Who is that book really for? Like, if there's it, a template. It's for everybody. It's, you know, for academics if they want to get some of the theology. But uh, more importantly, it's just for the general reader who's interested in spirituality. 
And uh, hopefully it will help people kind of open up and realize, well, there are other people on the planet who believe that we aren't supposed to be enemies, but we're supposed to be working towards a higher love vibration. So that book is for everybody. And, and you know, the subtitle is Universalism, the New Religion of Tolerance. And kind of that is, I don't know if we want to make it a religion because it makes it so structured and formal, but it's a good title. Okay, it's a good subtitle. Um, so the, the message is, let's change the vibration on the planet, and it's up to all of us, everybody. And one more thing I wanted to mention to listeners who are going to go and buy a fresh cup of tolerance. So you said academics, and you said general reader. Mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> I feel like I fall somewhere in between that. Mm-hmm. So a message to the general reader, it starts very academic, don't jump ship, (laughs) stay on board, because it gets less academic (laughs) towards the first third of the book is broken up into three parts. The first part is academic and just hang in there. It's going to make sense later. And then it goes back to like normal (laughs) for me when I'm like, oh, okay, great. Now we're back to normal English. Thanks. Um, So just a little warning that to hang in there, don't jump ship and a little hack. So there's no audiobook available yet. Hopefully there will be. Is there any talks about audiobook? Okay, great. So the hack that I did that Daryl actually was the one that came up with it is download, if you get the Kindle book, so you buy the Kindle version of the book, and then you download the Alexa app on your phone, then you can tell Alexa to read you the Kindle book. And Alexa's voice is not annoying. You can actually tolerate listening to the whole book with her voice. It's not robotic. She says a few things kind of weird, but it was actually, I was able to do it that way because as a busy mom, there was no way that I was going to be able to sit and read the whole book. Uh, So yeah, that was the hack of getting the audio without an audio book. Okay. And it's uh, coming out in December. Ah, yes, and, uh, December. It was, like I said, it was originally self-published in 2015, but it's been a little bit updated and improved, but it's pretty much the same book. Um, but uh, it will definitely be on Kindle. And I haven't talked about whether I'm going to read the book for Audible and do it myself or not. I, I haven't decided to do that, but um, you can still get it in Audible. And the second book, Fresh Cup of Counseling, is going to come out actually in November before the other one. So I'm, I just finished... I'm finishing indexing a fresh cup of tolerance this week. I have to get it back to the publisher, and I finished all that for the other book, so we're on the way. So uh, you might be able to make it for um, Christmas presents, but if not, definitely um, you know after. Is there still talk of creating spiritual counselors with this book? Well, actually, uh, I finally sent it to the U.S. Patent Office, a proposal for the International Guild of uh, Certified Spiritual Counselors and Coaches. So, yes, we're going to be setting up training programs um, based on that. And um, Natalie has been bugging me for that for three years <laughs> like, now. Like a I decade? <laughs> maybe longer, yes. And so, um, in all my spare time, we're going to be no, we're going to be setting that up, and um, I'm hoping in 2020, uh, 2022, we will actually be doing um, our first uh, regional and maybe online classes to certify people for to, for this kind of counseling. So exciting! It's been a long time coming, people. This has been 
awesome to watch him birth and I've been to watch him birth the books and I've been annoyingly every single year. Are you going to do the certification this year? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? So finally it's happening. It just had to happen at the right time in the right place with the right resources because it's it's a lot. It's, it's a big deal. And where can people find you if they want to do one-on-one spiritual counseling with you if they want to buy the book will it be available on amazon what's the best place to look at these books on november and december yes the the books will be available on all the major booksellers uh, barnes and noble amazon etc and in terms of if they ever wanted to either get counseling with me or my staff we are in in, it's called inner life transformations and so it's just innerlifetransformations.org on the webs on the internet. And so you can do that or you can actually, can I give a phone number? Because they can just call me direct if they want to. It's fine. Or text no, me. No, because you're going to no? get big and famous and you're not going to want to have your number in the ethers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, say so. Okay. But, uh, anyway, I will put it? his contact information in the show okay. notes, y'all. <laughs> Okay, thank you, thank you. All right, so that's good. So anyway, I'm excited. Um, The hard thing for a new author is to get a publisher. And so I was really blessed to get WIF, uh, WIPF, and Stock, which is an academic publisher out in Oregon. And, you know, they've done quite a few of the books for for our people at um, the university. So I was really thrilled to actually get a publisher. That's uh, legit, because there's a lot of publishers out there that uh, you can imagine this field is full of scam artists. Oh yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, so that's I got great. Lucky. I feel blessed. I want to make one more comment. Yes. Kathy and I feel so blessed to have been uh, the senior ministers for Medicine Science, because in addition to the fact of helping create the tribe, we had the tribe too. And so over the past 28 years, we've met so many, literally thousands of wonderful people. And you know, we've been blessed to have that that wonderful tribe in our lives as well. So we're grateful. What a blessing. Yes. And I wanted to say thank you because when I finished reading your book, I realized that my podcast is my ministry. Like that's Mm -hmm. my way of doing the work and giving back. Because at first I was stuck between do I continue committing to this or not? My resources are limited, both, you know, it's not free to produce the podcast. And then I have my baby with diabetes and my time and stress. And I do love podcasting, but it wasn't really... You know, I was asking myself, like, why am I doing this? Is this just, you know, marketing, like positioning myself when it comes to marketing or is it something else? And I was like, no, I need to take out the business concept and the positioning out of this because it it is it's a long format of marketing Mm -hmm. strategy and you're in it for the long haul. But I just was like, no, this is my ministry and I need to make time for my ministry. And it doesn't matter where I'm at when it comes to my entrepreneurial endeavors like this is my work as a universalist minister and that's that's what's just showing up as for me and it was just a great reminder of of why i'm doing what i'm doing and just kind of put my head back in the right place and my heart in the right place so thank you for that well i'm so glad you said that because you're right sometimes you know i run a business and uh, but it's not a business but it is so I have to do, be businessman-like sometimes, but I my real thing is, as a counselor especially, it's my higher purpose, and it's why I came here. It's my ministry. And so we have a lot of different ways we can be ministers. I know Natalie's also, her ministry is through her art lots of times, 
and uh, as a mom and wife and all that kind of each of those are our ministries and and that's part of being a light worker <coughs> and doing light living um, how well do we live those so i think they all kind of go hand in hand but i'm really grateful for the podcasts um yeah i think you reverend natalie is um, definitely doing her thing <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all, then it is a wrap. Thank you so much, Tom, for being here. I can't wait to have you back on the show yet again to talk about some other amazing magical topic. And that's it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As you know, this content is free, but it isn't free to produce. To support the podcast, you can purchase a Pachanga and Possibility t-shirt at cutiecrewbrand.com. A portion of the proceeds go towards finding a cure for type 1 diabetes. If you love this episode, share it with a friend. Use the share feature to text it over to them right now. Also, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. And last but not least, it'd be extra cool if you can rate the show and leave a written review wherever you listen. Thanks again for being here. I know how valuable your time is. 